0: Karl Barth's church dogmatics witnesses to his central preoccupation with Christology. Barth makes his position plain as follows, and I quote here from Bart: He says, an ecclesiastical dogmatic must indeed as a whole and in all its parts be Christologically determined, as surely as the revealed Word of God attested by Holy Scripture and proclaimed by the Church, is its one and only criterion, and as surely as this revealed word is identical with Jesus Christ. If dogmatics does not in principle understand itself as Christology and succeed in making itself intelligible as such, it has certainly succumbed to some alien domination. That's a quotation from Barth's Kirchlicher Dogmatik, Erster Band, Zweiter Halbband, written in 1948. This article of mine examines Barth's discussion of the so-called hypostatic union in relation to some of his critics and the implications of that doctrine for the traditional understanding of Jesus. I question whether Barth, while attempting to be attentive to scripture, has himself avoided a possible alien domination, as he calls it, in his account of how God was in Christ. A number of distinguished commentators have indeed wondered whether Bart's views are strictly scriptural and how far they may share unresolved perplexities created by traditions which date from Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Bart describes the hypostatic union as the union made by God in the hypostasis or mode of existence of the Son. God does this by causing his own divine existence to be the existence of the man, Jesus. This hypostatic union is the basis and power of the nativity of Jesus Christ, of the secret of Christmas, which as such is accompanied by the sign of the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ, yet which is not grounded in this miracle but in the fact that it is event. This unio immediata, which includes of course a communio naturarum but does not remove or alter either the divine essence of the Logos or the human essence existing by him and in him. It is properly and primarily and centrally the divine human actuality as which Jesus Christ expounds himself and wishes to be expounded. That's from... Bart's Church Dogmatics, written in 1936. Bart rejects a whole series of analogies which might help to explicate this union. It is not consubstantial, though Chalcedon speaks of the Son as of one substance, with us, as regards his manhood. It is not of the same order as that by which God maintains all things in existence, not like a man in a suit of clothes, not analogous to any relationship between two human beings, not like soul and body, how God was in Christ, according to Barth's scheme, must therefore presumably remain largely a mystery. What is clear for Barth, however, is that the ancient doctrine of an hypostasia, the notion as donald bailey describes it that christ is not a human person but a divine person who assumed human nature without assuming human personality this says Bart, must be upheld the necessity for Bart's insistence on predicating an hypostasia of the son stems from the impossible notion of a double personality in Christ. Once a personal center is accorded to the man, Jesus Christ, if Jesus has a human personality, and if he is also the eternal Son of God, there would be a double person in the Son. The logic of the problem is spelled out by Newman in his Select Treatises of St. Athanasius. He deserves a hearing as background to the questions raised by Barth's critics with regard to his unwillingness to surrender the ancient doctrine of anhypostasia, unlike many of his contemporaries, who find that doctrine detrimental to the humanity of Jesus as well as alien to the New Testament. I quote here from J. H. Newman's Select Treatises of the Saint Athanasius controversy with the Arians. He says this, that personality which our Lord had had from eternity in the Holy Trinity, he still had after his incarnation, his human nature subsisted in his divine, not existing as we exist, but so to say, grafted onto him, or as a garment in which he was clad. We cannot conceive of an incarnation except in this way, for if his manhood had not been thus after the manner of an attribute, if it had been a person, An individual, such as one of us, if it had been in existence before he united it to himself, he would have been simply two beings under one name, or else his divinity would have been nothing else than a special grace or presence or participation of divine glory, such as is the prerogative of saints. The docetism, the idea that Jesus only seemed to be human, the docetism, however, to which the doctrine of anhypostasia can lead, is well illustrated by Aquinas' defense of a remark he attributes to Pope Innocent III, that in the incarnation, and I quote here from Pope Innocent III, the person of God has consumed the person of man. But evidently wants to avoid any view of incarnation, which posits the analogy of the indwelling of the spirit in an individual. It is in this connection that he mentions Donald Bailey's book, God Was in Christ. Bailey is highly critical of the notion of an hypostasia considering it to be incompatible with true humanity, in other words, docetic. His uneasiness with Bart is reflected in his remark that, and I quote here, the cruder forms of docetism were fairly soon left behind, but in its more subtle forms, the danger of docetism, that is, continued in varying degrees to dog the steps of theology right through the ages until modern times. Bailey recognises that Bart would not want to speak of Jesus being man, but not a man. As the doctrine of anhypostasia traditionally seemed to require, Bart nevertheless holds firmly to the impersonality of Jesus' human nature as worked out at Ephesus and Chalcedon. but says this, God and man are so related in Jesus Christ that he exists as man so far and only so far as he exists as God. That is in the mode of the existence of the eternal Word of God, with capital W. What we thereby express is a doctrine unanimously sponsored by early theology in its entirety, that of the anhypostasis and enhypostasis of the human nature of Christ. What the eternal word made his own, giving it thereby its own existence, was not a man, but man's nature, man's being, and so not a second existence, but a second possibility of existence, to wit, that of a man. We have to take seriously sayings like Luke one verse thirty-two and compare with that verse thirty-five, he will be called the Son of the Highest. That's a quotation from Bart's Church Dogmatics. We wonder, however, whether Bart has in fact fully noted the implications of Luke one verse. Verse 35. Bart is, of course, fully aware of the charge that has been brought from many quarters that this traditional Christology is, in a subtle way, docetic, destroying the real human personality of Jesus. Bart meets the accusation by saying that what Christ's human nature lacks, according to the early doctrine, is not what we now call personality. The latter would be, says Barth, individualitas. Barth claims that no one denied personality to Jesus, human nature. Early theology claimed only that Christ's human nature possessed no independent existence. Bart wishes at all costs to avoid what he considers to be the mistaken Christology of the older Protestant dogmatics, which, as Bart says, was already asking whether the unity of God and man in Jesus Christ does not have its most appropriate formal counterpart in what was then called the Unio Mystica, the presence of grace in which God can give himself to each individual or assume the individual into unity of life with himself in the Christian experience and relationship. But it was not suspected at that time how fatally productive would be the theological possibility touched at this point. Bart mentions Donald Bailey's God was in Christ. As an example of this tendency to weaken Chalcedonian Christology. However, as A.T. Hansen says, most unfortunately, instead of answering Bailey's arguments directly, Bart associates him with a continental theologian of the last century, namely E.E. Biedermann in 1885, and contents himself With answering Biedermann, Hansen then points out that Barth does not succeed in replying satisfactorily to Bailey. Just how Jesus was God and man remains unclarified. Has Barth found a way round the perennial difficulty or merely restated the Chalcedonian dogma with its positive and negative statements? Do these amount more to a definition of the theological water within which one must navigate rather than a clear explanation of what is meant by the hypostatic union? Another critic of Barthian views of the two natures is the British theologian John A.T. Robinson. In characteristic style, he points to the problem posed by Chalcedon. J. A. T. Robinson says this, If you start the Christological sum with one individual substance, which is divine, it means you cannot introduce another human without finding yourself with the impossible exercise on your hands of trying to put two billiard balls on the same spot. Either the divine displaces the human, as in the doctrine of an hypostasia, or the human exists, in Cyril's phrase, as another individually beside him. That's from John A.T. Robinson's book, The Human Face of God, written in 1973. Robinson notes that the term hypostasis is used of members of the Trinity, it was not intended to mean a distinct centre of conscious selfhood, but rather a mode of being of the personal Godhead. However, it was highly problematic. The same word, hypostasis, was also used to indicate the selfhood of one who, as man, was a person, in the modern sense of that word. The heart of the problem which Robinson thinks but does not solve lies in the question of the genuineness of the humanity of Jesus once an hypostasia is predicated of him. Robinson's discussion revolves around two negative implications of this doctrine of an hypostasia. It has been used to deny that Jesus was an individual man and that he was a man independent of God's self-incarnation in him. The former Bartholz rests on a misunderstanding. Personality does not mean individuality. But does not the denial of independent existence amount to a denial of individuality? This is Robinson's question to Bart. Robinson alerts us to the possibility of a crypto-hidden docetism in the Chalcedonian Christology, which Bart follows. Must not the subject of manhood be truly and completely human in order to justify the predicate, a man? Robinson further points out that there has been what he calls a persistent tendency in the history of Christian doctrine, stretching from the Fathers to Karl Barth, to assume that Jesus could not be both a genuine product of the human process and the Word of God with capital W, the Word of God to it. But while not denying the individuality of Jesus, insists that the doctrine of anhypostasia is essential as a guard against Jesus being one man among many whom God could have taken. He wrestles with this issue in his church dogmatics. Bart says, For this would necessarily mean either the Son of God surrendering his own existence as such had changed himself into this man and was no longer the Son of God or that he did not exist as one but in a duality as the Son of God maintaining his own existence and somehow and somewhere alongside this individual man. And if, as is not possible, we could and should accept one of these absurd alternatives What would happen to all other men, side by side with the one man who is the Son of God, in one or other of these curious senses? How far could God, in and with the adoption of this one man, to unity with himself, adopt them all? How far could the one Son of God not be merely a Son of Man, but the son of man the man who could represent them all who could plead with god for them all and with them all for god robinson replies by stating that it is necessary to sift the truth from the error in this he agrees that jesus cannot be independent of god if by this it is meant that he existed independently of the divine purpose, but Bart has not sufficiently considered that there's an alternative other than the, quote, absurd alternative of the conversion of the Godhead into flesh or uneasy coexistence. Robinson suggests at this point that, and Robinson says, for once, Bart is not treating the question with sufficient theological seriousness. The epistle to the Hebrews, at any rate, found it not impossible to see him as both son and, in every sense of the word, a man. And it's up to theologians to wrestle with the problem without discarding one of the factors in advance. Before commenting on this exchange, we will take up briefly another strand of the Barthian Christology, which has come under criticism. This has to do with Barth's remarkable doctrine that in some sense the humanity of Jesus Christ was pre-existent. We first get a hint of this in Church Dogmatics 3, section 2. He says this, the man Jesus already was, even before he was. That's from Church Dogmatics 3, Section 2. This concept is repeated by Bart. The man Jesus was already at the beginning of time, as the one who was to come in the plan of God. Gordon D. Kaufman accuses Bart here of logical nonsense. And the theological error of docetism. However, I wonder whether Bart has not put his finger on a crucial Christological point. It is a fact that the pre-existence so-called texts in John are predicated of the Son of Man, that's to say John 3.13 and so on, not the Son of God. Bart takes an original line indeed when he proposes that the Johannine prologue should be read except for John 1:1 1, 1, in terms of the man Jesus he says the whole prologue speaks also of the man Jesus bart points out that the author of the letter to the hebrews likewise refers to the man jesus where it is said that god made the ages or eons by him in Hebrews 1 verse 2. This and many statements which follow concerning Jesus' superiority to the angels would be quite inexplicable if the reference were only abstractly to the eternal Son of God and he was supposed to stand in need of this exaltation and the inheritance of the more excellent name. Indeed, how could the eternal Son be put in the same series with the fathers, by whom God spoke at sundry times and in diverse manners? Barth then pursues his argument in First Peter. He says the one who, in First Peter one verse twenty, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, is obviously the one of whom it is said to the readers that they are redeemed by his blood, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He refers in the same way to Revelation 13, verse 8, and concludes, and here I quote, In all these predestinarian passages, the emphasizing of the blood, of the putting to death of Jesus Christ, is obviously inexplicable, if they are referred to a Logos Asarkos outside the flesh, and not to the eternal Son of God, and therefore also to the Son of man existing in time. Reverting to the exchange between Robinson and Bart, we note that Robinson complains that Bart excludes without argument the possibility that Jesus may be seen both as the unique sun arising from among human beings and also God's final word. Robinson's point, which is not, of course, original to him, is that the problem of the two natures was, and here I quote, largely created by the terms of the debate. If you do not think of the Logos as a being, but as something more like the expressive or self-expressive activity of God, then you can recognize Jesus as a man in the fullest possible sense, who can also be his word to the world. The same point was made by James Dunn, and would have been of critical importance to Bart's whole Christological exposition. Dan says this, the conclusion which seems to emerge from our analysis of John 1, to 1-14 thus far, is that it is only with verse 14, the word became flesh, that we can speak for the first time of the personal logos. The poem uses rather impersonal language, like became flesh. But no Christian would fail to recognize here reference to Jesus. The Word became not flesh in general, but Jesus Christ. Prior to verse 14, we are in the same realm as pre-Christian talk of wisdom and logos, the same language and ideas that we find in Philo, where, as we have seen, we are dealing with personifications rather than persons personified actions of God rather than an individual divine being as such. The point is obscured by the fact that we have to translate the masculine Logos as He throughout the poem. But if we translated Logos as God's utterance instead, it would become clearer that the poem did not necessarily intend the Logos of verses 1 to 13 to be thought of as a personal divine being. In other words, the revolutionary significance of verse 14 may well be that it marks not only the transition in the thought of the poem from pre-existence to incarnation, but also the transition from impersonal personification to actual person. That's a quotation from Professor James Dunn's Christology in the Making, written in 1980, page 243. If we now integrate the various strands of the argument, it will be possible to see our way towards a solution to the problem of Christology. From the perspective of an Anabaptist Christology fully developed in the Minor Church in Poland, in the 17th century, and earlier developed in Dutch Mennonite circles by Adam Pastor, we may propose that Barth's struggle results in part from his desire to be loyal to the patristic tradition enshrined at Chalcedon. The issue we are considering has, of course, to do with the definition of the divinity of Christ. Bart is fully aware that the dogma as such is not to be found in the biblical texts the dogma says bart is an interpretation the question is whether it is as good an interpretation as bart contends or whether its premises may have led us away from original biblical christology If we survey the section of the church dogmatics in which Barth deals with the eternal Son, it is noticeable that there's an unusually small proportion of fine print devoted to the exposition of the biblical text. Indeed, a rare citation of Scripture in these pages Shows Bart applying First Timothy six verse fifteen, which nearly all commentators refer to the Father. We find Bart referring to Jesus. Surely it is the Father, who for Paul, only has immortality. Bart elsewhere maintains that the term Kyrios or Lord, used of Jesus, automatically gives him the same ontological status as the father, has he perhaps overlooked the very much more convincing argument that Jesus is Lord, following the very frequent New Testament use of Psalm 110, verse 1, to refer to Jesus. According to this formative text, alluded to more than any other Old Testament passage, Jesus is the Lord Messiah. Adonai, my Lord, with lowercase l, not Adonai, the Lord God. As Geza Vermesh states, this fusion from Psalm 110, verse 1, of Lord, with lowercase l, and glorified Messiah, preserves the typical Jewish stress on an act of inauguration conferring lordship on Jesus. That's from Geza Vermesh's book, Jesus the Jew, written in 1973. The lordship we're talking about here is, of course, that Jesus is Messiah, not God in the later creedal sense. But seems perhaps not to take seriously enough the Jewish background to the biblical titles of Jesus. One may insist that the New Testament be heard first from its own point of view, with a caution that the later post-biblical language of Chalcedon not be exalted to a so-called midway position with the power to silence the biblical text. Our suggestion is that Barth's wrestlings with an hypostasia might have been unnecessary if he had taken as his point de départ, his point of departure for his christological task, if he had taken the synoptics and Acts and not relied so exclusively on John 1:14, read as it appears to many with spectacles tinged. With greek philosophy had he done this started with synoptics and acts if he'd done that he would not have made so easily the equation jesus is lord to mean jesus is god but justifies the title mother of god for mary on the basis of luke 1 verse 43 where mary is addressed as the mother of my Lord. But has he taken into account Luke's use of a current messianic title, Christos Kyrios, or Messiah Lord, for Jesus, as in Luke 2 verse 11. Mary was indeed the mother of the Lord Messiah, or the Messiah Lord. The Eternal Son might well have seemed alien, to Luke's understanding of Christology. We take this opportunity to identify what seems to be the essential point of our reservation about Bart's Chalcedonian language. When confronted with the fundamental Lucan Christological Statement in Luke 1, verse 35, Bart does not seem to abide by the strict exegetical principles. He uses elsewhere. Luke's account proposes a direct causal link between the virginal conception or begetting and the sonship of Jesus. Luke says, for this reason, the okay, has to say, for this reason precisely, Jesus will be called holy and son of God. Bart's comments on this verse are revealing the pressure of his own preconception seems to overrule his faithfulness to Luke's actual words. Noetically, that's to say, for us to whom the sign is given, the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh stands or falls with the truth. Of the conceptio de Spiritus Sancto, but it could not be said that ontically in itself the mystery of Christmas stands or falls with this dogma. The man Jesus of Nazareth is not the true Son of God because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. On the contrary, because he is the true Son of God, and because this is an inconceivable mystery intended to be acknowledged as such, therefore he is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But with the greatest respect, that is not what Luke actually said. The remark of the Jesuit theologian P.S. Leone is exactly to the point. He says, most modern exegetes, finding in Luke's statement a disagreement with their theology, attempt to give to the word therefore, the okay, an interpretation which eliminates or weakens this embarrassing causal link. That's from Lyonnais' work, The Annunciation of biblical Mariology in Maria in Sacra Scriptura printed in Rome in 1967. In regard to Luke 1.35, the choice is between the eternal son of Chalcedon and the conception or begetting Christology of Luke. The question may be posed as to whether the Chalcedonian Jesus can actually be found in acts or peter without the aid of an a priori perspective can he even be found in john and paul barth's christology is satisfying and illuminating where he deals with the text of scripture but much less convincing when he elaborates the creeds an uneasiness about barth's restatement of classical christology was expressed by John A.T. Robinson. The biblical basis for the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, which did not trouble Aquinas very much at all, but should have troubled Bart, had he been more of a New Testament exegete, has increasingly disturbed me and been brought to a head as I have wrestled with the great Johannine texts on which so much of it was based. On any interpretation it's clear that patristic theology of whatever school abused these Johannine texts by taking them out of context and giving them a meaning which it is evident that John never intended. Functional language about the Son and the Spirit being sent into the world by the father was transposed by the church fathers into that of eternal and internal relationships between persons of the godhead and words like generation and procession were made into technical terms which the new testament usage simply will not substantiate. That's a quotation from J.T. Robinson's article, The Fourth Gospel and the Church's Doctrine of the Trinity, found in Twelve More New Testament Studies, SCM Press, 1984, page 172. Edward Schielebeck concurs when he says forthrightly that and here's where his words are quoted. There is no basis in Johannine theology for the later scholastic theology of the so-called procession of the Son from the Father within the Trinity per modum generationis, or birth. That's from Schielebeck's The Christ, written in 1980. In this connection, it's hard to see how Psalm 2 verse 7, "You are my son, today I've become your father," can possibly lend support to the notion of an endless today, as Bart, quoting with approval Cyril of Jerusalem maintains a quotation from Bart about the today of Psalm 2:7, is found in his church dogmatics, number one, section one. When Bart tells us that the Son of Man was before he was, he gives us an important Christological insight. The texts he cites, discussed earlier, reveal the basic theme of the foreordination of the Messiah, who was, and we quote now from the Bible, Crucified before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, verse 8, and foreknown before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Had Bart been content to leave aside the further construct that the Son Himself pre existed as Son of God, he would have remained safely within the outline of the scriptural text. However, his basic presupposition prevented this, for but revelation is found not in the letters and words which fill the pages of the Bible, but rather in the Word, with a capital W, behind the words and present in the Christian community as tradition. We may ask, however, what exactly this Word, with a capital W, word behind the words is james p mackey discusses bart's approach to scripture and remarks that and i quote when we are wondering about the origin or the authorization for a particular doctrine and someone points us to the word behind the words it never does any harm to inquire what precisely these very inspiring phrases are intended to denote. What is the word, capital W, behind the words? Answers to this question in terms of a so-called gospel, within the gospels, are too obviously invitations to arbitrary selectivity. Has Bart not in fact staked everything upon one interpretation of a single verse in John 1, verse 14. Does not Bart perhaps fall under the strictures of James Barr, who complains that, and here I quote from James Barr, traditional and orthodox theologies seldom worked according to the proportions of the biblical material. On the contrary, They commonly elevated to a key position in their structure elements which had comparatively slight and even marginal representations within the biblical material. In this sense, traditional orthodoxy is a monumental example of the picking and choosing that it deprecates in others. That's a quotation from James Barr in his book, Holy Scripture, Canon Authority, and Criticism, written in 1983. In adopting a theology of the capital W word and not remaining strictly within the words, lowercase words, Bart sometimes appears to lose touch with the scriptural text. His Christology is often magnificent. And grandiose, but at times floats above the text in a way which makes one wonder whether it has abandoned even the spirit of that text. Warren Groff points to the danger of speaking too glibly about the word behind the words. Frequently, expressions like capital W word, capital E event, and God's personal self-disclosure are pointed towards a thing in itself which remains in obscurity behind the appearances. But one can distinguish between the appearance and the real only from some prior awareness of the real. Only from some more foundational capital word can one mark off word with a capital W from words as from Warren Groff's book Christ the hope of the future written in 1971 in Bart that foundational capital word sometimes seems to remain obscure when however he discourses on the words of the historical Jesus he's on a firm footing and often most engaging and illuminating this brief examination of one aspect of bart's monumental account of dogmatics has been helpful for me this brief examination of one aspect of bart's monumental account of dogmatics has been helpful for me as an exercise in trying to discern and test the spirits naturally one approaches the church dogmatics from a prior perspective In my case, worked out over some 30 years following an initial disillusionment with the mainstream's apparent failure to take the words of the Sermon on the Mount at face value. An investigation into the issue of war and peace led to an inspection of the further issues of eschatology and Christology. Somehow, one department of theology affects all the others. When I learned that Bart did not disavow all violence, and while sometimes sounding like a pacifist, he allowed for that one Grenzfall, in which violent retaliation could be Christian, I felt a certain uneasiness. Is this another fateful question? Yes, has God really commanded us to love our enemies? Despite Bart's impressive accounts of the Incarnation, one feels at times that we're moving in an atmosphere different from the New Testament. I'm intrigued by a question put to Bart by Oliver Boswell. I asked Professor Bart how he explained the prayers of Jesus and his sayings, in which he spoke objectively of the Father and Son, and of the Spirit. His reply was to the effect that in speaking of the Deity, the difference between subject and object completely disappears. I said, is that not then mysticism? To which he replied, well, you could call that mysticism. It's a quotation from Oliver Boswell's Systematic Theology, written in 1962. In my current teaching ministry, I've wanted to raise the question whether a particular understanding of John 1.14 perhaps controls Bart's entire Christological system. If the balance of the other evidence of the New Testament is taken into consideration, an approach to the Christological problem, unlike the one offered by Chalcedon, makes a strong appeal. Its strength, as a more biblical Christology, has been shown by the recent work of James Dunn, John Robinson, and Geoffrey Lamp, who do not feel that Barth entirely escapes the charge that his Jesus is a little less than a real human being.